0: Good morning, everyone. I think we'll start. Um, I'm Margaret Kelleher, Chair of the Board of the IFI, uh, and on behalf of colleagues uh, Ross Keane, Director, Sunnybo Flynn, Head of Irish Film Programming, uh, and all at the IFI, I'm delighted to welcome you to the seventh year uh, of Spotlight. Um, in our strategic plan for the Irish Film Institute, we say that as part of our role as Ireland's National Cultural Institution for Film, we aim to provide a space for critical reflection and discussion uh, and those of you who know the IFI will know that that is a feature of our work throughout the area of programming, um, of education and of archive, creating that really important space for critical reflection and discussion. If this is your first time at the IFI, you are warmly welcome uh, and may it be the first visit of many. As I said, this is the seventh year of Spotlight, and it is a crucial forum for us for that reflection and discussion. It's a chance for us to review developments in Irish film and television output, including of the past 12 months. But it's also time, I think, a very precious time for reflection um, for all of us who are very busy uh, in the rest of our lives. And I have also watched over the years how this as a forum also I think can often anticipate developments and indeed help to shape them. Part of that role is the body of work that the previous years have created partly through the recordings. Uh, today's uh, proceedings, most of them will be recorded uh, and there will be a roving mic available for the Q&A. But I can attest from my day job uh, that students and colleagues from Belfield to Brazil have drawn on the resources of past years of spotlight and, and find them invaluable. So warm thanks to everyone involved in past years, and especially this one. You have a sense of the, of the shape of the day here, just remind you that the cafe bar is providing a special lunch deal of soup and sandwich for 7 95 If you can stay with us for the day, I hope you can. And Also to invite you, there will be uh, at the end of the wrap up session, uh, there will be a, a launch of Dr Ruth Barton's new book, Irish cinema in the 21st century, what's left of the national uh, and you are all warmly welcome uh, to join us for that which will be at about 4 o'clock. So without any further ado, I um, will introduce our first two speakers this morning um, who will be addressing 2018 in review. Uh, The two speakers are Dr. Roddy Flynn and Dr. Tony Tracy. Roddy is Associate Professor at the School of Communications in DCU, where he also chairs the Masters in Contemporary Screen Industries. Uh, Many of you here will know already his really important work on Irish media policy, uh, such as his work with Professor John Horgan on Irish media critical history. Uh, And he and Tony Tracy. Are publishing later this summer the second edition of the Historical Dictionary of Irish Cinema. Dr. Tony Tracy is director of the Houston School of Film and Digital Media at NUI Galway, and with Roddy, he's co editor of that invaluable annual review of Irish cinema for the journal Estudios Irlandeses, um, and he's co author, as I mentioned, of the Historical Dictionary of Irish Cinema. Um, their presentation will be—we uh, expect around about, I think, 40 minutes—and that'll give us some time for Q&A directly afterwards. So please join me in welcoming them both.
1: Yes, yeah, so 40 minutes. Fuck it in. Um, <laughs> um, we're going to split this into. Tony's going to mainly take um, the first uh, half. He'll basically do the heavy lifting. I'll just come in at the end and make it look pretty. Um, But what we, as as Margaret mentioned, um, we've been doing Estudios Irlandes, which is an English language, Spanish journal, available online free, Um, and there's quite a few, I'd say, contributors in the room to it, actually, as I look around, Um, which is a kind of an ongoing reflection on just what Irish cinema is, um, and what Irish cinema television uh, is. And so we draw on that, I think, a little bit in in today's um, talk. And what we particularly I suppose, want to focus on today is, I suppose, the space of Irish cinema, <coughs> both within Ireland, but perhaps more particularly, I suppose, how it relates to the outside world um, and how the outside world um, sort of finds itself implicated inside Irish cinema. So let Tony, as they uh, introduce the clarity uh, bit. the, uh, the
2: Okay. Hello, and thanks uh, for inviting us back again. Uh, we never believe we're going to be invited back again. We may not be after this. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's very nice to be here, and it's uh, always nice for me to be back in the uh, in the IFI where uh, I worked. Uh, it's really great to see so many friends and colleagues um, from the from the sector here, and um, I'm really strongly mindful of Ruth being here and uh, the the launch of her book today, um, and. You know, that, that, that really the job of Estudios Irlandes in a way has been uh, in between those two books. Um, you know, that our journey in Irish film discussion has been, you know, bracketed, I think, uh, I haven't seen the book yet and I'm very excited to see it, um, between Roots Irish National Cinema and What's Left of the National, if you like. and. Um, maybe the distance in time between those, and Ruth will speak to this a little bit later, uh, expresses the kind of uncertainties um, about how to talk about Irish film in that period between, Ruth, what was that, was it 2003, maybe? Four. Four. And 2019, that 15-year period. So this, uh, my thoughts, I think, will echo and chime a lot with what Ruth's going to talk about in that book, which, as I say, I'm very mindful of in, 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 uh, in my kind of comments today. Um, I'm mindful of it because when that book came out, when, you know, on the back of Cinema in Ireland and so on, we, we talked about this notion of a national uh, cinema and we became obsessed with this question of what that meant and so on. And clearly that is no longer appropriate, um, but it's no longer, it's not appropriate to forget about either. And so I suppose the job for academics and, you know, teachers is to try and think about frameworks and paradigms within which to understand the media, cultural production, and nationally sponsored by taxpayers' funds, and cultural endeavour. And I think that that notion of the, the you know, the, the, that the populace pay for a great deal of productivity, actually, cultural uh, output, is really central and crucial um, to the way we think about these questions. And that colours our demands of it, yeah, our demands of those products but also a colour our interpretation. And so we'll never really truly get away from that, kind of putting pressure on that, as, as long as it, it sort of has a, a state, an association with the state and with the national. Um, having said that, uh, I taught a class this year which I really enjoyed, um, which I didn't know where I was going with. Uh, and it was kind of the notion of film as artifact. And it was predicated on bringing people in from, there's a few people from Ellen here, people from distribution companies, people who are programmers, people who are curators, and trying to sort of see what people did with this thing called film, expanded cinema, a wide variety of things. Um, And so it's a kind of a vocational, you know, again, this is also the crisis of universities, is what what do we do, what's our engagement with the real world, so they're caught between models, I suppose. And um, so I tried to find some reading and thinking about about, uh, film now. And that might be useful as a kind of way of framing those people coming in and talking about their work. And that's kind of where my head has been at uh, for a while. And the term uh, that I sort of thought would be useful to sort of frame today's discussion would be this one, the relocation or the relocations of Irish film. I'm also mindful that this is James's last year um, and that has been a name change. And so it seems today is a kind of a pivotal day on on a number of fronts uh, connecting those those various dots. that at this particular moment in 2019, the Irish cinema is sort of relocating and, uh, in, in, intellectually, but also in terms of uh, appointments and also in terms of agency uh, perceptions of themselves and so on. So I think that's my main kind of a point, I would, but clearly we've come to the end of something uh, and we're about to, we're embarking on something else. I've taken this title um, from uh, an American, Italian-American um, academic called Francesco Cassetti. And uh, he's written a lot in this, in this field. Um, but there's an essay title uh, called, um, What is a Screen, Nowadays? Uh, which I think is, is useful. And uh, this is a slightly long quote, but he says, the digital era has resulted in the relocation of cinema, the breaking of the original unity of film experience through delivery and setting. The proliferation of screens has led to a general transformation of their nature. There are no longer surfaces on which reality is uh, relived, but have become transport hubs for the images that circulate in our social space, the junctions of a complex circuit. So that's a little bit intellectual, I suppose. You know, we're, we're, but, but it's useful, isn't it? I mean, I think that's a really useful thing to be reminded of and to kind of foreground in thinking about cinema. Uh, this, this notion of, the, of that cinema is relocated. Um, so when I started thinking about cinema, I did it actually in this room. Uh, my very first job in cinema was in this room, talking to groups of young audiences, uh, uh, school-going audiences. And we screened The Third Man here, uh, I think about 18 times that year, because it was the only film we had. Um, and, but it was also a film that I really liked talking about, uh, and it was a really great film to teach. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful film, it's got really nice scenes. Um, and and also it really resonated with students. They loved this uh, kind of being in the room, the dark room with this dark film, with these kind of uh, epic themes, messianic uh, sort of salvation and so on and betrayal, really good old-fashioned stuff, and that was a kind of moment of cinephilia for me, you know. And, and in a way what I was trying to sell, looking back, was cinephilia. I was trying to sell this notion of cinephilia that came out of the 60s, where you would say, I go to a big room, a dark room with a big screen, and there are certain aesthetic qualities involved, um, now, cinephilia, you know, is, is, has, has hit the rocks a little bit. Uh, there are cinephiles, but the, 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 the location of cinema for those students today is obviously, you know, you get on a train and someone's got a pair of weird earbuds on and they're watching something. So, how do we contend for that? Do we just sort of, you know, do we say that that's just part of the whole experience, or has that shifted things around a little bit? So, Cassetti says here that the unity of film experience has been split through delivery. And, setting. and so the unity is that experience that I'm talking about in this dark room. Um, and it's been split through delivery, so this thing, and also setting you know, on the dark, uh, uh, basically. Um, and uh, he talks about this notion of, of transport hub. So what he's really saying is here, what do we talk about when we talk about cinema? Um, so you know, that has obviously effects. Like, what do we talk about when we talk about Irish cinema? Um, do we pretend that these changes have not existed? Um, and I cl- clearly that has been a central sort of notion that I'm, 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 I'm thinking about. I nicked this picture off Donald Forman. He posted it on um, Facebook. So I, uh, if you see him, tell him uh, I, I acknowledged him. But he, <laughs> he, uh, he, this is obviously a, a picture he, um, he posted in uh, Williamsburg. Uh, but it's a great picture. Um, <laughs> And he probably has forgotten his statements in fact, but uh, I, like the, I like the, what I particularly like is the cashier uh, on, the, on the phone uh, and, and everybody else on the phone. You know, the great coffee house, uh, Habermas's notion of the coffee house as the space of, um, of the public, you know, the public space of discourse, where people go to talk about politics, this notion of the public realm, and clearly culture has a very particular role in that. You, know, you and I remember, or still remember, perhaps going to the movies and coming out and debating furiously about the value of that. Well, this is the public realm now. Uh, everybody together, but not really. And so Cassetti says, the cinematic culture of the gaze, you and me sitting there and that beam coming through the wall, has been superseded by the post-cinematic screen culture of the glance. Um, so that's the context in which not only our cinema, but all screen production, in a way, uh, exists, um, and, and there are repercussions for that, both in terms of what, what cinema should do, and what is its democratic, uh, democratic mandate, what's the mandate of culture, and so on, um, but also how it is consumed and also how uh, it relates to us. The notion of a collective audience has really splintered and fractured, um, and we would have been a collective audience in this room not very long ago, where we could have managed to talk about art films together. Um, and you know, I met a colleague uh, today, and she said, I, "You know, I'm out of touch. I haven't seen that. I haven't, but I have seen this." And I, so that's the that's the common experience. I haven't seen everything, but I've seen the things I, I'm interested in, and I've consumed those things in this way. So the the field is one that is 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 splintered and uh, and, and fractured uh, in all kinds of ways: consumption, delivery, setting, demographics, uh, and, and location uh, geographical as well as as screen. So that's the question. Then you know, is it possible to sort of, sort of blandly stand at the top of the room and say, "Here's what happened in 2018." Is it even possible to grasp that? Um, and 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 you know, in many ways, it isn't. Uh, is really the point. So, you know, what what do we talk about? So this is what happened uh, in response to those changes. In a way, um, earlier on in the year, and you'll be aware of this. And I was kind of intrigued by this and being kind of you know, employed by the state as an academic, I have to adopt a kind of lefty attitude to pretty much everything. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I uh, you know, I rather provocatively, I have, you know, the Irish stoneboard logo here from circa 95 with its appeal to a Celtic eternal uh, uh, past and cultural vein and pipeline of ingenuity to, to this logo here. Um, and I'm not being critical. Uh, I'm simply saying... This is an interesting transformation um, in, on a semiotic level of how uh, an agency understands itself, um, or even how its PR people or its graphic designers understand itself. There's a clear and evident shift there um, from something that harkens back to a notion of mythic past and collective identity to something um, that uh, adopts this kind of uh, corporate purple. Um, and, and I find that kind of interesting. And as I say, I'm not trying to kind of really judge that, but it is, it is a recognisable and deliberate shift of, of self-understanding um, in, in, in semiotic terms. So when the change happened, I thought I'd reach out, as they say, to filmmakers and see if they had any opinions of it. And so these were a couple of, it's on this website that's called Brainstorm on RTD. So Ed says, uh, very much flex the way I think the world is moving. Uh, Nessa, uh, who you, you know, I don't, Nessa was here last year, and Nessa works mostly in television with great great success, ha- very high-end television, um, welcoming an enlarging of remit given Irish TV's minimal engagement in screen drama and acknowledging of current realities. You know, Nessa's forged an incredible career uh, with great uh, recognition uh, on that other screen. Lenny says I'm okay with it, but I think it's important that TV support or you are not in a position to sustain TV, history. and that's been a bugbear that comes up every single year, a bugbear of the film board. So this is a this is a, a, a wider acknowledgement. There were, however, a couple of naysayers. Uh, uh, Cahill, uh, who, who has ex- you know, achieved unbelievable things within the Irish film, uh, the animation industry, um, changed the logo without changing the 1980 Film Board Act, as pure PR, uh, content consumption has changed and a more up-to-date mandate is required uh, in, in legislationally. The same act uh, has been interpreted to exclude and marginalise animation and a very globalist outlook um, within the animation industry, perhaps more most, most globalist dimension of the Irish uh, audiovisual sector. Uh, John uh, was terrifically uh, contrary, uh, which is always good for copy, and uh, said absolutely daft, the whole caving into the laptop and the phone screen as some sort of fae accompli is tiresome headed TV is a passive failure, films really do last a lifetime, who wants to watch a comedy at home on one's own, or a musical, so that, that's great. Uh, uh, um, and, and does exactly what I wanted him to do, uh, in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, again, celebrating that notion of cinephilia and the collective experience. Uh, and then Joe, actually, Joe, to be uh, totally truthful, sort of inspired my reflections, because Joe sat there last year, I was here, and uh, had a go at the impending change and said, a travesty, abolishing five decades of serious work, which will have very serious consequences for Irish storytelling. Really on the nose, really not mentioning his words, you know, and I thought that was very interesting, and it got me thinking about that group of people who put together, uh, you know, the, the first phase of that Irish film uh, in industry in the 80s, and you know, came of came of age through the FLA and so on and so forth, as a post-colonial film festival, as a post-colonial endeavor, as a counter-dominant, uh, counter-capitalist kind of endeavor. So I think it was important for me to kind of put that in there, because that is a, a and again, I, I'm not trying to personalise it, I think this is a range of views um, for people who are working in various elements of the thing. And Joe's comment particularly stayed with me, because it's the idea, like, there's serious consequences for Irish storytelling. is a very interesting line. Um, does that mean that what Cahill, for instance, uh, is doing is not Irish storytelling? Uh, you know. Um, uh, or uh, So that's been that tension, I think, that's... Uh, been. But also what I think Joe's point brings up is, you know, names matter. Um, because they, they shape us, they position us, um, they determine how we think about ourselves. And that I suppose this position over here is that we still need to tell stories that are local, that are small, that are about us, that challenge dominant uh, ideological positions and so on and so forth. So, as I say, that's the kind of... Um, questions then. What is a screen nowadays? What is a screen Ireland nowadays? Uh, and we see that there's this incredible diversification of content, themes, genres, formats, funding structures, distribution, exhibition strategies, and potential. A kind of a bewildering, almost ungraspable kind of, uh, and Niall said, you know, are you, you, know, you going to talk about trends because there are no trends, you know, or words to that effect. Like, how do you identify a trend? Well, you're yeah, right. There, like, there aren't trends. There are micro trends and multiple trends. Um, A spectrum of tensions between local and global, at one end, multi-platform content to the fore, and and animation is the most extreme example of that, Um, while at the other end, an enduring and indeed increasing interest in local themes. And I'll just say something quickly about feature doc in that space, if that's okay. So there's a French philosopher called Deleuze and Gutierrez, and they've written this this two volume book um, called Capitalism and Schizophrenia. And they introduced this title of deterritorialization and re territorialization And, uh, you know, it's a kind of complicated concept, but at the same time, I'm not de- deliberately taking all of it. I'm really more interested in the terms. What they basically say is, you know, the capital deterritorializes a, 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 a zone, and then that zone is then re territorialized or reconceived. Uh, Roddy was like, what now? Last night we were walking the dog, and uh, I said, well, see that canal there, Roddy, as we walked along the canal. And uh, he put down his can of slider and he said, "Yeah." And, uh, <laughs> uh, I said, uh, "That canal is not a canal, uh, right?" And uh, I, you know, the point being that uh, once the canal exists to transport goods and services, so it's not just a nice piece of water. It actually has a function and a role thanks to capitalism. And as a consequence, those who live near the canal. Uh, have different roles within that capital structure. There's a kind of a taking out of goods and services, if you like, um, and then there's a transformation of the space and also of my role and position within that space. So that's the argument, that capital de it changes and shifts the place around you, but it reconceives it. Okay. Um, and I think that tension between de and, and re-territorialisation is a really interesting tension or a really useful kind of concept to think about uh, the way Irish audiovisual production might be thought about. Uh, in a kind of post nationalist um, kind of uh, space, so on the one hand we 've got this kind of top five uh, from last year, which is kind of fascinating um, and very dominated by kind of local stories, uh, which is kind of heartening Al- although you know the box office around here at number five six actually is you know there 's a whole bunch of films kind of Oh, yes, thank you. Um, and um, yeah, Sorry about that. It was Paddy Brannock that put me off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm trying to this, uh, account for my... Uh, and um, so that's kind of interesting. And, you know, you might have thought that The Stranger, you know, would have kind of come a bit higher there. Um, and, and yet, you know, Black 47. So Black 47 is a very interesting film, speaks to a local need, speaks to a local story, um, and clearly is rewarded for that. Um, and, you know, we can, we can come back to that. But it's an interesting little set of statistics um, about the kind of uh, the logo. And then on the other hand, you, you know, you get this, um, which the Irishness of this is, uh, well, I, I don't really know how to talk about it, I'm not really qualified. You know, a film that's been in development with multiple partners, is funded by film four and, and you know, and, and sort of goes around the house, but element pull it together, make it happen. It, it, it comes on the back of the lobster. And, and has sort of recognised and has this absolute unbelievable box office um, and of course a film textually not recognizably you know nothing to do with Ireland at all and its origins and so on and so forth and yet it's the kind of mentality and the courage and the connections uh, of element who make this happen um, uh, unburdened by is it you know those kind of local questions uh, and scores uh, an amazing success um, and so, one of the things that Gutierrez and, 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 uh, and, and I guess Jamison and kind of critics of postmodernism complain about is the kind of flattening out of culture in, in, in the post uh, late capitalism phase. And there's a bit of a tendency of that at the same time. So, we get these two pages on the film board, on the Screen Iron website, which, um, in which we take kind of neoliberal sort of uh, slogans. Imposed upon stories that are, in a sense, kind of interchangeable. Do you know? Um, I'm not saying that's deliberate. It's not even a critique, but it's 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 a sort of an interesting, again, semiotic understanding of what's happening underneath the story—a story about the famine, which in another period would have been seen as you know a, an unbelievably national story, a story that needed telling. And the way that story is told, we can talk about it if you want. You know that it is obviously a kind of you use the famine as a kind of a setting, really. Um, and then the little strangers. And, and, and the kind of concept of tel- talent, creativity, and, en- and enterprise are kind of borrowed from the neo- neoliberal playbook of self determination and individuality and self actualization. And um, the tension between the notion of the democratic function of culture, a democratically sponsored um, function of culture, is, is sort of secondary in a sense. And yet, you know, this is um, this creative industries model is very dominant in the Anglo, Anglo-Saxon world, and, and clearly has been kind of really adopted um, by, by the state agency. And there's nothing wrong with that, and clearly the state agency has had greater success than at any other time. Um, but it is an interesting thing nonetheless to be observed, uh, I think, um, so that the, the, the local, if you like, and you know, again, the localists of Black 47 is a kind of a tricky one because the local parts of that film are kind of all explained to you in huge chunks of kind of dialogue is the format of the film is a kind of a, a, more, a more sort of global, a global format. So that's the position that production um, finds itself in, I suppose. So I'll just finish up now by just saying one or two quick things about the feature doc, because we never talk about feature docs. Uh, and I've sort of obviously left out huge amounts of, of uh, activity there. I've particularly skimmed over a lot of really low-budget independent things that, that didn't find at the screens or audiences. And I haven't spoken about animation, which had an amazing year and uh, a thing like, um, sorry, what's the woman's name, Christmas? Um, Angela's Christmas, thank you, which was a phenomenal uh, achievement and success, which really you know, develops from a local story and, and, and it attains enormous uh, circulation via, via Netflix. And I haven't spoken about horror either, but I know there was a symposium earlier in the year. And horror, of course, is a really fantastic sort of in-between zone um, in Irish cinema, that very frequently takes kind of local settings and sort of uh, repurposes them. And uh, there's a lot to be said about about her, um, but I'm, I'm sort of skipping over those really, uh, just to sort of point for time considerations to the feature doc space, which uh, is really really fascinating. Um, I, I start off by talking about this notion of deterritorialisation and how, you know, a lot of Irish feature films have a kind of um, a problematic relationship with that. Very often I've observed films like actually um, um, a Hole in the Ground, which are not really set anywhere um, and, and sort of deny that. There was another one that was, uh, David, uh, what, that film that he made in the Dunko, set in Canemara with Stephen Dorff. don't know if anyone's seen that. Again, a film which kind of just sort of wants to be anywhere and everywhere. Um, and uh, so that, that sort of deterritorialization there of, of setting uh, and also of consumption. But the re I think, is happening in really interesting ways in the feature doc space. Um, and maybe that notion of storytelling and the travesty of storytelling, maybe that actually has passed into a different genre and format. That's kind of what I'm in- interested in sort of exploring and thinking about uh, more and more. Um, and I've become quite interested, I've talked to a few people, including Karen and other people, about uh, how Irish documentary uh, uh, reterritorializes itself, um, both through content, but also through the notion of the territory as a, as a distribution space. If the deterritorialization is partly to do with this, Irish feature doc has, in the last decade, anyway, has taken really interesting kind of opposite space uh, directions um, to find its own audience and to find its own local themes. And so, I just want to end by sort of pointing to that and, and, and suggesting that because. The Gutierrez say "Every time there is a de-territorialisation, it is matched by a re-territorialisation." That, maybe that's a kind of way of thinking about about these. Um, uh, there were, yeah, this, this is the Film Critics Award um, in, in, in the year just gone, and you've got four feature docs um, out of out of ten there, all of which are really um, quite fascinating and um, and interesting and quite local and personal uh, in ways that maybe. Uh, we might have expected uh, features to be at an earlier earlier time. Um, these were probably the most high-profile uh, of those. Um, but there, we can we can and we could talk about that in, in, uh, in you know universal Sto- stories, local perspectives. But then you know these these couple of tendencies, the the proliferation of films about the North, which are really really good and really engaging and really um, challenging. Uh, I think *Idolores* is probably the film that. I found the most moving last year. Um, probably, for me, it was probably the best film of the year in many ways, the yeah, most disturbing. Um, and uh, I had a, a small read, but Donaldson, The Image That You Missed, and, and one of the, you know, deeply personal um, engagements between the past and the present. And uh, uh, following up with films like Bernadette and 66 Days, which are now, you know, a really, really interesting group of films uh, to think about, um, The notion of the national, is really what I'm saying, Um, in a a less epic space, in a less sort of, determined. you know, know, it doesn't have to follow those kind of formats of narrative uh, cinema in quite the same way, and and can be be much more sort of experimental. And and these three films, which, uh, I don't know if you've seen these, or one of them maybe, or all of them, which are uh, really amazing films, incredibly beautiful, incredibly poetic, um, and also incredibly political. Um, films. And, and do that work that you might hope a national cinema does uh, to disturb, to disrupt, um, to contradict, to work against, you know, the Joe Comfort com- comments about Irish storytelling. Like I think this is where this is kind of happening at its most pointed and personal and poetic. Um, all of these films in different ways challenge notions of power and space, particularly, and privatisation and capitalism. Um, and they actually challenge the, the, the state all of these films in different ways. Um, some of them are have more nostalgia than those, but all of them have a sharpness about them. They're also all very beautifully executed. They're aesthetically of a very high standard. They're very personal and uncompromised and really reaching. and They're incredibly rich. Uh, I found all of these films incredibly rich uh, and, and interesting. And if you haven't seen them, you should search them out. Um, it would be invidious to identify one over the other, but they, they have to be... All of these... See, this is the point. All of these have to be seen on a big screen, each one of these. So, th- in a way, they re-territorialise the, the cinema space, is really the point I'm, I'm making. Um, these are just two other ones that I, I picked up in, in Palos along the way. Very interesting and uh, slightly, slightly uh, different uh, in, their, in their emphasis, very local, and um, this local contributions of Irishness within global contexts. And so I'll finish then, really, by just pointing to what it seems to me to be the scheme uh, that is working really hard to do this and take some attention away from uh, if Screen Ireland, in a sense, uh, and, and celebrate, uh, uh, you know, the notion of proliferation of funding systems and from funding uh, engagements. And that's this uh, real art uh, uh, scheme with the Arts Council that's now ten years old. And I won't dwell on that, but I will say that. I don't know how many of these films you've seen, but they're all worth watching. (laughs) Um, So two or three films a year. Um, Some of them more local than others, um, but all of them interesting. All of them centered and a little bit uh, freer, I think, to concentrate on the artistic voice. Yeah? A little bit freer to sort of uh, not so much uh, think about audiences, but to think about expression. And uh, so I, I don't know if you've seen sort of Further Beyond, for instance, which is a really fascinating uh, moment. Um, architecture is having a moment. There's actually quite a lot of films about architecture. And, uh, but a, a very wide range of, of titles there. And I would, uh, I'd love to see a program of these, actually. Uh, I'd like to see them go away if, if, if anyone can help, <laughs> if anyone knows anybody who owns a cinema and go away. And um, I'd like to see a kind of review of this and celebrate uh, this kind of uh, uh, notion. I did a quick analysis of those, so 24 films, 27 directors, 19 male and female, 18 and, and on this variety. But I, I think overall that that scheme needs to be pointed out and celebrated for this focus on the um, individual. I want to finish uh, by just pointing towards this kind of research project that I'm trying to figure out what to do with, and I've met a few people here to try and think about it. I'm sort of interested in the notion of re-territorialisation finally, not simply about settings of stories, but the re territorialization of the audience, the finding of that audience uh, as, as a local group. Um, so what is a screen nowadays? Anything and everything. And I want to kind of celebrate and simply point towards the incredible endeavours uh, feature film, feature filmmakers have made, not simply in trying to find local and celebrate the local uh, in aesthetic and politically challenging ways, but also find and celebrate the local in terms of audiences um, in a way that perhaps That is the main challenge for a national cinema, is to, in the proliferation of content, is to not forget about the people who are sponsoring this and who, in a sense, are a key pillar of the endeavour, along with production, which was always the big challenge, um, and along with, I guess, artistic uh, aspects, but the social dimension. And I simply want to just uh, point uh, uh, quickly at this notion of self-distribution, which is and also this kind of hybrid model of distribution that happens in uh, in, um, in documentary, and, and Karen's been really helpful helping me understand that, and so other people at the IPI. And I haven't got so much a thesis there as a kind of a as a kind of a, a narrative of a kind of a subculture, if you like, of distribution practices that have been happening in feature docs. So we do have three films there uh, that had um, sponsorship through through distribution companies, but films like the image that you missed, the Only Battle of Thomas Reed, the Camino Voyage, and Mother, all finding audiences in different ways, with uh, filmmakers going in person to groups and one-off screenings. And I know, for instance, the Lonely Battle of Thomas Reed, you know, Dennis was telling me, you know, in, in, in Maynooth, finds a local audience of 300 people sort of showing up at the door. So uh, and I'm sort of exploring that a little bit and, and, and just tracing that history. But that finding of the audience, that cultivation of the audience in a very personal, bespoke, local, democratic way, is something that feature filmmakers uh, have been doing in a way that um, hasn't been so prevalent, if you like, in uh, in, in uh, feature filmmaking. Um, I don't know if you've been following the image you missed, but I think that he's it had about 200 festivals. It's been released in Mexico. Um, it's had this most incredible sort of distribution exhibition kind of story. And I'm just trying to catalog that a little bit at the moment. Um, uh, a journey which began with, I think, and is bracketed by Ken Warthrop with with uh, his and hers. And, and, and bracket this year by, by making great. Okay, so that's a couple of concepts rather than a kind of a, a full overview. Now, Roddy will bring us a bit more towards a discussion of policy.
1: Thanks, Sonny. Uh, so he's done everything I wanted to say. <laughs> Although, um, I mean, I have a, a kind of script here, but there's a couple I want to pick up on that out of that. So i the policy wonk um, and it just as I was thinking about it, like there, there is a long history of Irish stone policy, often it's more theoretical than actual in the sense that there was no industry to kind of have a policy for. So you had these kind of abstract notions of if we had an industry, what would we do with it kind of thing. And this goes back to the 1940s. Um, but broadly speaking, that policy has always been about kind of de from the 1940s on. It was a very quick and early acknowledgement or at least decision that you probably couldn't have an indigenous industry if you wanted to have film production activity in Ireland it wasn't going to be by Irish filmmakers uh, it was going to be other people coming in and making films sort of on our behalf and that's from Sean Lamass as Minister of Industry and Commerce arguably onwards, I mean arguably kind of up to, up to this, 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 this day and I'm going to make this point, I'm going to talk mainly about actually the Audiovisual Action Plan which is if, if we are at the end of something and we're going forward the Audiovisual Action Plan is the kind of official kind of roadmap. This is where we're, we're, we're going to go. I'm going to suggest it's not a particularly interesting roadmap, and that in fact, it's uh, a map that's probably it's been in existence in one way, shape, or form for the last, for the last 30 years. Um, but what is interesting about those, I think the, fi- the feature docs you mentioned in particular. But also, I mean, some of the, um, that, that list we showed you, they're kind of the most successful, by the way, they're the most successful Irish films. They're not the most successful films in Ireland last year by any means. I'm not even sure. Black 47 might have made top 10. Probably did. Ruth, do you know this better than I did? Oh, I, did. Um, I did. I did, did Of okay. course <laughs> you did. Um, <laughs> um, but it's the only one um, of that list. And you'll notice, like, there's a bit of a... Gap um, between what Black Forty Seven did, one point five million at the box office, and the next most successful, which is about two hundred and fifty million, but it's it's a ways down. Cost? Um Two hundred and fifty thousand. So, it, I, actually, I think it has been a tribute to the institutions which have ended up being entrusted um, with the support of our s- screen production whatever the screen might be, since the establishment of the first film board in 1981, that in the the face of a kind of an official discourse, which is promoting um, film primarily for industrial reasons and for reasons of economic development, that they have managed to support that kind of work. Because most of the titles that we see there do have some kind of film board money in them. And in a way, it's kind of, you know, I'm not saying it's snuck in, but um, it's, 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 It's probably, it's kind of thing that I think that the politicians are delighted when that stuff, um, you know, makes a mark at a a festival or whatever. Um, But the the, the focus will tend to be on the the runes of this world and the lobsters of this world, Uh, the favourites of this world, you know, the Irish success story um, internationally this year. But stories which we would, the possible exception of of the lobster, I think struggle to find tenets of Irishness kind of you know bit built into. Now, even the lobster, okay, know it's shot in Parkinson and whatever, and there's a couple of Irish cast members and it's a production company, you know, um, kind of very an Irish director and or, sorry hardly an Irish director, group um, director. that's the closest one, but really it's a story set nowhere. It's a kind of it's a European story if it's anything. It's a what we used to call Europe but pudding. I like it I but it's it's hardly an Irish story. Um I also kind of briefly just wanted just sort of to hark back to that slide you had from the IFB of, from from Black Forty Seven and uh, the Little Stranger. And just actually just for one second, we'll just, just bring it back. But I think it really kind of illustrates that point about the territorialisation, and not not to hark on it, but just to reflect on it for a second. So Black Forty Seven, whose lead cast, whose lead um, kind of actor is an you know, Australian actor. Um, Playing Irish, and um, doing it pretty well, as a matter of fact. Speaking Irish. As well. Speaking Irish, very yeah, Um More so than I can. Um, you've got you got weaving, um, an Australian actor playing English. Um, so there's a kind of an instant kind of just kind of you know messing around I suppose with kind of with, with national identities in that. And then beneath this, we have that kind of scion of the um, Irish acting dynasty. Um, that is the. Um, forgotten the name Gleason. Um, playing English, right? Um, and not playing it um, for the first time, in a film set in England, um, 1940s England, you know, based on an English novel. Um, and this is kind of unproblematic and but it's it's it is, again kind of striking. I, I end up teaching quite a lot of American students. Um, they're stunned even though the game the name is Donald Gleason you can see how his name is spelt when you tell them he's Irish. Um, because he's the guy in The Revenant, he's the guy in Star Wars, he's the guy in you know, Little Strange or whatever, Um he kind of pointed his dad kind of in Calvary and said, no, oh, that's his son, and he goes, what? Well, so so there's, like, it's, 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 it's
3: commonplace, this kind of you know, this, this, this deterritorialisation. But what I, what
1: I kind of focus on, I suppose, is how this is reflected in kind of, say, the roadmap, the official roadmap for where Irish cinema is going. And this is the individual um, the Action Plan, which I, I don't know if everyone's familiar with the existence of, um, of this thing. But just briefly, um, June 2018, we're, we're basically, we're in this moment, and you may have missed this, but um, uh, everything we do now in Irish politics is about the year 2040, right? So Project 2040 is where we're all kind of heading towards. So it's joined up thinking in a way that we never had before, and everything's going to be brilliant by the time we get there in every possible sphere of Irish life. Um, so, it, but in 2018 we yeah, have the launch of the the Individual Action Plan, probably about six months actually after it, it probably could have come out. And many of the recommendations that are in that about where are we going to go grow out of uh, an earlier document that uh, Giuseppe Madigan had launched in uh, in April 2018, and uh, that's the document on the right there, which is uh, investing in our culture, language, and heritage, 2018 to 2027. There's lots of overlapping kind of um, uh, temporalities in here, which are kind of a bit confusing. Um, so the 2014, but the the language, culture, and heritage project is 2018 to 2027. The digital action plan goes from 2018 to 2022. There's also a culture of 2025, and I'm not entirely sure why those dates can't be made to line up a bit more. But broadly speaking, the um, the investing uh, in our culture plan basically looks to spend about 1.2 billion in that period, the 10-year period, on capital projects that are related uh, to, to culture and creativity. This is all about ultimately improving our social, economic, uh, and cultural infrastructure. Now, uh, the audiovisual action plan is pillar four of Creative Ireland's um, sort of five priorities, I suppose. Um, And this comes out of a document that was published back in 2016, yeah, by the the department. Um, And these are the the basic um, objectives. I mean. You don't need to kind of focus on, the, the, I'm really just interested in the one in red, basically, the basically the, there's five pillars, basically, of how we're going to um, make things better in terms of culture. But the fourth pillar is the one which is unquestionably the most hard-nosed, I, I would argue. It's focused on the development of Ireland as a global hub for the, and emphasise that, a global hub um, for the production of film, television, drama, um, and animation. Um, and so the audiovisual action plan basically um, kind of stems or kind of grows out of that. And what it does is it, it identifies 29 um, action points. That are, these are organised under eight headings. And these, in turn, as more reports, are based on findings um, of a report that came out, or well, came out in June 2018, but was actually completed in December and was, was given to the department in December 2017, um, called An Economic Analysis of the Audiovisual Sector in the Republic of Ireland. So it was produced by Oldsburg, SBI, and Nordicity. These are, I think, all London based um, consultancies. And this was originally commissioned back in 2016 by Heather Humphreys, since she was still a minister. Um, but it's also been influenced by a May 2017 document that had been produced for Screen Ireland and the Broadcasting Authority. produced by Crow Horth, who are an international consultancy firm the office, uh, in the office in Dublin. And this is a strategy for the development uh, of skills in you know, the audiovisual sector. Um, so, what does Basically, I'm going to focus on the kind of the relationship you'd like, between Wolfsburg, um their report, and what the audiovisual Action Plan actually has in mind. Broadly speaking, it's the kind of um, usual future-scoping ambition. Um, this is where we are. This is where we want to be. Um, where are we? Well, where were we, supposed to start started off in 2016? Uh, um, the argument is that in 2016, the Irish audiovisual sector, which is very broadly defined, so it's film, television, but also radio, which is unusual, not usually included in this, um, and the digital games sector. Um, these are all kind of forward in to Irish um, the Irish digital sector. Um, so the suggestion here is that this was employing nearly 17,000 people, or at least the the full-time equivalence of 17,000 people. Um, about 11,000 of those are directly employed um, in the individual sector. The rest are sort of um, indirectly employed. And that, that sector as a whole generated just over a billion euros uh, in 2016. And so the goal is that by 2022, um, if we follow the, uh, the roadmap of plan offers, we'll double all of that. Right? Um, so in the 32,000 people, it be 2 billion um, in, in industry. Um, and we can do this, and again, I'm kind of giving you the spiel here, um, because we, we have these amazing technical skills, because we have tax credits, we have soft funding, um, Brexit uncertainty is pointed to um, repeatedly in this document, we're going to be likely the only English-speaking um, kind of location uh, within the European Union. We have infrastructure, stunning locations. Um, there's a kind of a delicate reference to an ability to bring all the resources of the country to bear in making solutions work, which I think is code for the Irish Army is available, if you use it, um, for you know, whatever, Steven Spielberg or whoever it might um, be, be flying around. Um, but based on that, there's a series of kind of, of eight specific uh, recommendations, and here's seven of them under these headings. And I'll go through them kind of in, in a little bit more detail in a second. Um, so they look at section four, one. They look at uh, reviewing section sources of film funding, increasing money to section to, to, to screen Ireland, um, focusing on skills development, regulatory reform. This is more related to broadcasting than, than cinema. Um, P- pushing the promotion of the marketing um, of digital games, and then going kind of selling of other recommendations at the end of it, um, relating to, for example, Irish language uh, production. That's seven. The eighth one, though, is the one that is given the greatest priority um, in both the... It's at the last one, I think, actually, in the Oldsburg report, but it's the first one in the early action plan. Um, and this is who's going to be charged of this thing, who's actually going to make sure that all these promises are, are put in place. Um, And the argument seems to be that in the past we've had lots of reports, and we have had lots of reports, there's a 20 or 30 year history um, of how to make sure we've got a brilliant, vibrant um, industry in this country, Um, but that they haven't necessarily been followed through upon. You can go back all the way to, say, the Kilkenny Report in 1999. Many of whose recommendations actually are kind of echoed in here. So the suggestion is that the steering group which was set up to put the audiovisual, or to put the... um, SBI, Norberg, report into place in the first place, that that should be kept um, in place. And at the moment that is made up of representatives from the departments of culture, from the department of communications, enterprise, from the BAI and Screen Ireland, and there's a suggestion that maybe that should be included to include um, the departments of finance and education. Which my first response is that seems like actually quite a disparate um, kind of group. And there are other groups who would like in on this as well, Screen Producers Ireland suggested they should have some role in this. Um, but that is the, kind of the key thing, that for once there should be some singular body driving this basically from beginning to end. What I want to do though is just to ask the question, um, given the specific set of recommendations that I'm going to go through, what looks like actually happening? Like to what extent are those recommendations likely to be sort of fulfilled? So let me do them as quickly as I, as I can. Um, so the first one relates um, to Section 481. Uh, you won't be surprised to, suggest, to hear that they suggested it should be extended. Um, at the time it was published, that the date was going to be 2020. That was going to be the end of section 481, but within it's subsequently extended to 2024. That the maximum eligible ex- expenditure on that um, you can draw down for section 481 should be increased to about 100 million from 70 million. Um, the relief should be extended to digital games, which is kind of striking. Um, But not unusual, something similar is happening in France, has already happened in the UK, I think I'm correct in saying. And there's a variety of other tweaks um, that are are built into it. Um, Now, what's the response been um, to this from the state? Well, it's been sort of circumspect. Um, Bits and pieces of this have been done, but perhaps the most important bits um, haven't been. And I think the problem is there's a kind of disagreement over the figures here. If you look at the uh, Alford report, it suggests that there's a kind of a, a minimal, but there is a return based on the investment into um, film and television production from Section Forty One uh, in Ireland. The OSM report suggests that for every euro of Section 481 money that is sort of foregone, that the exchequer gets back one euro and two cents. Okay, it's a two percent return, but it's a return, so it's not, you know, it's not costing anything. Um, But if you take a a much wider multiplier effect of the effect of those productions being in the Irish economy and what impact that they have, the suggestion is that actually every euro spent there brings back maybe three times that much, two euros maybe two cents, which is fine. However, um, the Department of Finance's tax policy division did their own uh, research using a much more conservative set um, of metrics. Um, they have a completely different set of conclusions, you won't be surprised to learn. Um, they argue that actually it's just costing the state money, there's no getting away from this, and they, they specify it. So again, just looking at the period that they're focusing on between 2015 and 2016, they say this cost the state over 100 million quid. Now normally that would be the end of the discussion because the Department of Finance speaks loudest, right, he pays, pays it on that. And in the past, that is pretty much where I would expect the narrative to, to conclude. What is actually kind of really, really interesting, though I might suggest a new moment, is that on this occasion, the tax policy division said, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't do this. That may literally be a first in the history of the state. Um, instead, what, the tax, what that tax policy division report suggests is that may be the cost of culture. So let's just call it that. Let's just say we think culture is important. This is the price of it. Um, it seems that tacitly speaking, we are willing to spend money on this. So let's proceed uh, on that basis. And that may not again it's kind of, the significance of that is kind of buried um, in the, even in its own report. I haven't seen too much emphasis on the significance of this. But that is a, if it, if it means something, if it's actually acted upon, that is a transformation. In the uh, kind of the hard attitude, uh, of, you know that, that the state has adopted up towards kind of cultural spending at this point. Um, other kind of recommendations that I looked at. Um, so some of this some of these underway. Um, there's a to talk about we need to do a root and branch um, review of alternative and innovative approaches to film funding. Um, that is um, underway at the moment, I think, in fact, Screen Ireland, or, am I right, is that coming, or is that...? Yeah, no, it's that's to do with the Audiovisual Media Services Directive.
4: Ah, okay. A lot to do with levies and contributions from um, service providers.
1: Okay, but um, there's work underway, basically, kind of in, in this direction. Um, the recommendations of the Report Makes and Skills Development, that's in the hands of Screen Training in Ireland. Um, and basically, what the kind of the work they have to do is, and it's—I mean—I'm kind of conscious of this as a person who works in third level, and level—that the match between what the industry would like and what we actually provide has never necessarily been perfect. I'm not saying, suggesting that education should be entirely instrumentalised to in the needs of industry either. Um, but we should probably be in a room together um, at least once. And that probably doesn't happen um, enough. Um, that's where there is some—that's where there is some progress, but. I'm going that elsewhere actual progress since this came out, this only in the last year I guess, has been either none or basically very slow. Um, the report suggests that basically there should be a series of funding increases for just about everything you can imagine. So for Screen Ireland, co-production funding, development funding of film and television, for television drama production, game prototype development, business development funding for the Irish Screening Commission and regional production. And if you think about it for a second actually, if you just basically put more money to the Screen Ireland, you'd indirectly um, put, you know, be putting more money to all of those things uh, as well. Um, and the, the documents which had preceded the audiovisual action plan, the investing into cultural language and heritage, did commit to spending 200 million quid um, on media production in the visual industry. Over that decade. So that's roughly 20 million um, per annum. Um, but the language is kind of interesting there. Like they're, they're talking about supporting co- co-production funding to support the development and production of more projects such as Room and Brooklyn, which were Irish and international co-productions. Like the, I find that emphasis on the international kind of particularly kind of significant, and I'll we'll come back to that in a second. That said there has been some um, actual movement on its other kind of you know, ideas of promoting a regional uh, production. So we have yeah, the, 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 the Western Regional Audiovisual project, uh, which actually precedes the, the launch of the Audiovisual Action Plan, which is already about to produce, I think might be one of the more interesting films of the coming kind of year, um, Can with Horses. Uh, just based on things that right, haven't read it go out and buy Talan Bard's uh, set of young store, of, of um, short stories, young scenes. Um, but the, the difficulty about that 200 million um, is that if you, if you break it down, it's 20 million um, per annum. This is an increase of in what the film board has had uh, in recent years, but it actually just brings us back to where things were in 2008, because that's what the film board got in 2008. So it just brings us back to the, the pre crash peak of, of funding. And for me, that does not, like, if you're going back to two thousand eight and saying that's how much money we're going to be spend, spending nearly twenty years later per annum that does not suggest a realistic kind of ambition to move beyond where the position was back then in 2008. Um, and so the, the level of support which is envisaged in the Allsberg SBI Norberg um, report does not appear to be supported by the level of funding which the state is putting into audiovisual production um, going forward there are some vague references in the individual action plan to extra funding somehow coming from Screen Ireland to BAI, RTE, which is a bizarre and baffling um, introduction. RTE is identified as part of the problem at the moment, not because RTE is you kind know, of evil, but because RTE is um, ongoing, is in, not quite terminal decline, but is in crisis, is in more or less permanent crisis because uh, its funding has collapsed since 2008. Um, and that shows absolutely no sign of going backwards. Um, so I, I find that kind of the reference idea that RTE might somehow address the problem, I mean, literally, be you Um Now, in practice, uh, in February of this year, Screen Ireland did set up a TV drama fund, um, but the level of funding envisaged in the Art of Eventual Action Plan is about 10 million per year. Screen Ireland is able to produce somehow 600,000, I don't know where they found it. Um, and, uh, even the individual action plan acknowledges that, um, although up to half a million could be given uh, to individual projects, that in light of the pressure on screen on resources, awards considerably less than the maximum are likely to be offered. To put that into context, um, okay, Rebellion, um, which came out obviously earlier in the year, that, that TV series, uh, an hour of that was about 1.2 million. So you get half an hour of Rebellion for the entire TV drama production fund, And obviously it wouldn't be spent that way, to it was just a put it James. The
4: fund is two million euro. Uh,
5: The cap per project is 600,000.
1: Well, then I stand corrected. But my point stands, I get an hour and a half of rebellion out of that. That the project that the scheme exists is fantastic. It's still still a fifth of what is actually envisaged in the individual action plan. Um, Against this, then there's the final sort of recommendations that relate actually to RTE and practically more money into, into TV. Um, just a couple of points, um, the BAI has been recommending for a decade now that RTE is, or that RTE is underfunded, and it's been ignored um, by successive ministers who have refused to basically go anywhere near the licence fee because I guess in the context of water charges and the rest of it, who has the nerve, right? Um, but it's reached the point where in the last set of recommendations the, uh, the BAI said RTE now needs 30 million extra um, a year. We've reached that point, things are so basically not so far behind. And the audiovisual action plan says well, the only way we're going to address this is to to engage in serious regulatory reform. We need to get rid of the licensee collection model, household broadcasting charging needs to come in. We need to get rid of the current must carry regulations, which means that essentially RTE is carried for free by Sky and by Virgin Media, even though it's worth literally tens of millions uh, to both companies. there's been some advantage to RTE, they got back something that they lost in the middle of the, uh, the crisis years of the, uh, of the recession. They got the uh, money that basically the, the free television license fee, you could the to pensions, that used to come from the Department of Social uh, Protection, that was pulled, now it's been given back. But still, RTE is basically um, in a hole. Um, so put all that together, um, and you've got uh, a, a kind of a crisis uh, for, 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 for television drama. Um, I'll skip past the last two because I think they're, 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 they're kind of kind of minor, but just the point I want to make is that most of what we see in the Eurovisual Action Plan has been proposed before. We just haven't done it for, for, for most of the time, often I think because it has not been supported by the necessary financial and human resources. If you look at the, kind of the big figures that are quoted in the Eurovisual Action Plan, it looks like we're serious about doing it this time around. But actually, when you break them down, it's still kind of a pittance. People are still going to to do, I think, impossible things with with the money that's made available to them. But the final question might be, is it still kind of, even though there's one body, one notional body kind of identified to drive this through this steering group, that body is made up of at least, I think, five different institutions and maybe as many as seven. That still feels like something which is basically too, too, too disparate. But the last thing I would emphasise about this is to go back to just that one slide here and go back to Tony's point, and I'll sit down. Um, what is the result going to be of this audiovisual action plan? Those three points. Increased investment across the sector, so there will be more money for production in Ireland. Concomitant produ- increase in the production of screen texts within Ireland, not necessarily Irish screen texts. Right? And it's always useful to remember that while we are here and we're talking about things like feature docs, the biggest part of the Irish film industry, or the film industry in Ireland, perhaps more carefully, is still stuff like, you know, the American uh, drama series that have been produced here, um, that are often largely invisible to us. How many people knew the Quantico um, was filmed here three episodes? One, two, three, okay, if you... okay, in, in this room, if no one is going to be horrified, um, how many people here are watching Into the Badlands on a kind of a regular basis? One. Okay. Again, it, but these are, this is where the money is, right? Um, and then finally, this this last line: increased provision of Irish cultural products to Irish audiences, and their, again, their export to international audiences. I'm not saying they shouldn't be exported to international audiences. I'm not saying that shouldn't be an objective. But it strikes me that the first bit should be the kind of you know, the key thing. And a film, like Black 47 which, although it did incredibly well in Ireland, frankly, failed to perform outside Ireland. It's not a film that's necessarily designed to perform outside Ireland, although it does take a kind of revenge kind of uh, kind of structure. Um, but that it does so well in Ireland, in a way, we should probably go grand. Job done. Yeah. OK, thank you.
0: Many thanks to you both. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And we have about 10 minutes uh, for Q&A, so uh, just in order to keep the day moving, uh, and uh, more or less on time, would maybe ask you, first of all, to introduce yourself, and also if you could keep your question or comment brief, so that we can ha- hear as many voices as possible. Right. I think this gentleman first, and then, yourself. Every
5: day, my name's Tony. I just wanted to ask you,
1: why is a uh, Marketing overlooked. You skip past that. Because I ran out of time. But, eh? but, uh, well, actually, um, what's interesting to me about the marketing thing, actually, is that the emphasis in the Audiovisual Action Plan isn't so much on the marketing of film as it is on games, Um, which it's about brand. The the big focus is on brand development for um, branding Irish games as Irish games at international um, events. At least that's how I'm reading it, Um, which in this particular audience seems like not perhaps kind of that, that that relevant. But it does say something about um, I suppose to kind of to come back to Joe Curmafort's comments about, you know, we've lost five we're, we're five decades of kind of emphasis on film. It it does suggest that from the state's perspective going forward that the the shift to Screen Ireland means more than just kind of screen that size, screen that size. It means a much wider and broader definition of what we think of as screen texts, including games.
4: Um, my name is Orton Macken, and I'm a son of Walter Mackin. And he was involved in the first films made in Ardmore, including his own play, One as a Hero. And yep. um, the three films that were made originally in, the, in that time were you know they were based on Abbey plays. Mm. So that was a basis on which they were done. Now he wrote ten novels, and I'm working at the moment on developing Raid on the Wind, one of his novels, into a movie. And um, to my mind. It's a story that will reach the world. It's not, it's not just a story for Ireland, but it's also very Irish. And that was the advantage I thought of, Black 47, that had an Irish content, but it had an international reach. Now, I think one of my father's novels, like, because when it was published originally in 1951, Rain in the Wind somewhat half a million copies in America. So it's, it, and it's, it's a wonderful love story. So that's the project I'm working on. And I think, like when you think of it, in France, twenty films are produced every year because the government supports them. The That's government gives them. It's money. far, I like far, it's far more than twenty films a week. Yeah, twenty films a year. No, no, like it's,
2: thir- it's about thirteen French films released every week. Is that right? Yeah,
4: I didn't, didn't read it, but it's huge. In other words, the government realizes, and like I saw, Gendre Torret, a manager source. In the south of france and
1: they were wonderful but not not, to not but not to cut across you but actually that that point about the international reach of black of black 47 actually isn't this is the strange thing and yeah, the thing that needs to reflect on i mean ruth is doing work on this as well as so doing the paper um, but i mean what did it take in the states oh
0: nothing uh, nothing and if you read the interviews they did actually pitch it to the states they really believed there is the kind of imagined Irish American audience. Mm. Can everyone them. hear, by the way? Sorry. To, yeah, sorry. You would just wait for the mic if you don't mind, because we have a, sorry, a busy, a busy room, which is um, great to see. I, I, I don't want to take up too much time, but, but yeah, no, it's absolutely time in the States. And if you read the interviews, they imagined that the Irish American audience would want to go and see it. Um, it, uh, it, it did slightly, I mean, it, it did faintly better in the UK, but not really. Mm. But also, people were baffled by it, they didn't really get what it was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, my own take is it really resonated with *Mary audience, because it was it was a, a triumph over adversity story regarding the, the famine, rather than mm. a loser story, if you like to put it rather crudely. I,
1: I, I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, "This is Inglorious Bastards* mm. in Ireland," right? Yeah. Just a fantasy of, kind of what you know, what, what yeah. might what yeah, might, yeah, might happen. But there's another dimension to *Black 47*. If you don't mind me
2: just intervening, that I think it, it, <laughs> is, is um, almost unaccountable for. Um, you know we, know, we know ideas about genre and localization and globalisation, these are kind of common enough concepts. But actually Ireland really wanted a story about the famine. Um, and that's, that's an indefinable uh, kind of a notion. You know, the Coming Home exhibition, which uh, I don't know how many of you managed to see at the, in the coach house in, in Dublin Castle, um, blew the doors off in terms of visitors and then toured um, to West Court, Scabrine, and then Derry asked for it. Um, I know Declan O'Rourke had an album out uh, dealing with the famine. Um, I made a short film for school audiences about the famine. Something was happening. Um, and, and part of that was to do with, with the, the legacy of, um, of the crisis, the housing crisis, you know, the, the financial crisis. And the soul searching that went on around that and who are we and what are our values and we need to get back to who we are and cop on, you know, that kind of discourse that went, and the famine stories sort of emerged, you know, these kind of cultural sort of, you know, uh, streams that are indefinable as a necessary story, a story that would bring us back to understanding who we are and where we came from. And even if uh, some people said, well, you know, it sort of plays to this kind of thing, that was okay. You know, we we sort of let it go there because somehow that nourished us. And culture works that way. It's like your story about your father's books. There's no accounting for the way culture nourishes us on an imaginative level at necessary times and places. I mean, that's why books fall out of favor and then are rediscovered and reread Mm -hmm. through the present. And suddenly they emerge as masterpieces. Um, and and like, I don't want to get too soft about that, but that's a really, really important part of that kind of discussion. Why a film succeeds. It's, it, it's a little bit like Michael Collins when that came along. Michael Collins was a necessary story as we emerged into a kind of more globalised uh, uh, world. And we always have to be mindful of that, um, both as funders, but also as, as audiences and critics and teachers uh, of that imaginative dimension
0: to things. There are two more famine projects in development for Screen Ireland I, I will just invite some other voices. We may get in. our feel of yeah. the famine yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have another question here. We'll just take two more to finish. In, and we have a rich day ahead. So if you didn't get in uh, now, there will be a chance later. But we'll just take these two questions, if you don't mind. Was Did you say there was. OK, great. Thank
5: you. Uh, thank you. My name is Hugh Farley. And uh, thank you, Robbie and uh, Tony, for that very useful uh, overview. Um, I think what was interesting—I'm not sure—I think Tony might have addressed it—conflict between the cultural, the need to stimulate if you want cultural production, and the need towards uh, stimulating an international business—and and that dichotomy has been in a, a lot of the analyses and proposals for the, the industrial strategy for the audiovisual sector. And I'd like to suggest that actually, rather than seeing it as being a fight that needs to be won either by its cultural forces or the mercantile forces, it should recognise that the nature of screen industries embrace both, and that perhaps the Arts Council takes the cultural wing, uh, and Screen Ireland takes the more, uh, if you want, mercantile. I, I think there's there's. Perhaps that's not practical but what I think I'm trying to address is the idea that um, you can't expect, uh, you you can't have a conversation that it's an either or. it has to be a parallel apparatus Mm -hmm. and we need to put our heads together amongst, to use that awful phrase, stakeholders uh, to get together. There's been a lack of congruence amongst all of the stakeholders. Uh, in this sector, um, and that uh, was, uh, that really needs to be a continuum. There was, a, 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 you might recall, a seminar in the uh, Royal Hospital for May, which attempted to do that, which was, uh, I think, uh, created by Culture Ireland, and I, I thought that was very useful for it. And I thought that that, it's, it's an initiative like that which reports or uh, analyses on a constant basis, on a yearly basis or something that convenes to, to check in to see what our progress is in terms of our cultural I just and... I just
2: wanted to say something. I, I would just like to pay tribute to the former film, Irish Film Board mm-hmm. in Ireland. I think they've done a spectacularly good job um, for a very long time actually in balancing those concerns. Um, and it's not an—I mean, it's not an easy—you know—that's not an equation you can—you know—you can do. The only thing I, I wanted to say about real art, and the reason I, I've sort of neglected looking at that and thinking about that at all, and we tend to think about feature films. And my point there is that there's simply a proliferation of funders is a good thing, do you know? Um, and and so that not one group of people decide on what we're, we're after here. And the other thing I found useful about the real art is this—is this, is this uh, consistent, and I hope they stay they stick with the consistent celebration of the artist. Um, is, is, is a very, very interesting um, and to be, you know, that, that, that personal voice um, and it hasn't, doesn't have to be a, a large funding mechanism, um, where if you were to be criti- critical maybe about uh, real art and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you won't mind me saying this um, and it was, it was just because I noticed making the great a, a distribution um, it was about have those films found audiences and I, that's all I was trying to say is that audiences are a really, really important part of this whole business um, the funding is very is crucial, fundamental. Obviously, without funding, you don't get productions. But but we also, in the age of multiple content, need to be developing constantly, mindful of audiences. And again. You know, I'd like to really celebrate the Irish Film uh, Institute for the work they do through education and so on. And that work uh, has been really stuttering throughout the industry about the development of audiences and cultivation. of audience. I'm not sure we've gotten very good at that, to be honest with you. And I think that that's an area that we just need to keep maintaining in, in that argument about not so much content, but about discussion and the, demogra- the demographic, the democratic kind of um, uh, accretion of, of rich cultural texts.
0: I'll take one last, uh Come to, and, and give you the last word, Roddy. Then, <laughs> I may mean, have
3: right. one. Um, hi, my name is Amy Gagan. Am, I'm setting up an organization called The Audience, or ALF for short, if you want. Um, and it's just, I'm looking at um, RTE's funding. And while yes, RTE are in the a lot of it is partly down to themselves. In relation to the 10 million that the Arts uh, Minister suggested, uh, that was from lobbying from RTE. And reading in between the lines, that sounds like RTE want to reduce their funding towards TV drama from the 22 million that's it's currently at down to about 12 million. So the extra funding that RTE potentially will be there is actually not there. Um, and that was after a lot of lobbying from them. Uh, RTE have increased funding. While they've had cuts, they've also increased funding to 2FM by six million when they weren't funding at all. Six million to their corporate HQ and another 3 million to international productions. They're actually spending 26 million a year on international productions, while they're only spending about 3 million on children's productions. So if you can imagine, for animators, that's uh, devastating. Uh, For for innovation, that's devastating. And we really need to take a look at RTE because when they talk about asking for extra funding, they haven't actually said where they're going to put that extra funding to me. All they're going to do is fill a gap because they've lost money over the last, uh, I mean, they 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 do
1: address that to be fair in the last okay. pro report. I mean, they um, they do say this is how we're going to spend the money in the next. RCE. Oh, uh, RCE. It. Hmm? It. Yeah. Um, it's it which is the it came out. Um, this time last year. Uh, but it does seem it does
3: seem to me that RCE are you going to change drastically. I mean, look, I'm I'm
1: this, this probably the isn't the venue for a discussion yeah. of RTE, I'm no, probably, I'm, no, but I'm, 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 I'm probably do do more sympathetic um, to that than, than well, you
3: might
4: I'm fascinated by young people today who won't go to the cinema. Like, even The Avengers, which is a fantastic movie, a lot of them won't go to the cinema to see it. They say, oh, we can see it, we can download it. Bullshit. You need to be in the cinema to enjoy something like that. Yeah. You know, but the that problem is, of
2: course, you can't tell people how to I consume know, sorry, things. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean... That, Shall um, we give you the, 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 well, the closing word? I mean, no, I mean, I think, I think that's... You know, that's... what we, we finished where we came in, in the shift from Irish Film Board to screen, Screens Ireland, um, that you cannot legislate for how people consume content. And there's a generational issue that I... You know, that I have a vision of cinema that is not shared by... Uh, people who are uh, younger than I am, um, all, all my, my simple point was is that I think film and television and screen content retains a function that is essentially cultural, imaginative, democratic, enriching, about values of citizenship, and that needs to be constantly maintained as front and centre uh, in, in any
1: state-funded engagement with screen industries. Um, well, actually, that kind of says it. I mean, it was just to, to come back to kind of Hugh's point. I, if it sounds like I'm coming across as a kind of, I think it's a dichotomy between the two, that's I should not That's not my intention. What I'm trying to say is this is how I read the audiovisual action plan, and this is how I read the discourse of official government policy on what support for the audiovisual industry is about. And I think it's consistent over at this stage, the guts of 80 years. It's about industry. It's about kind of employment. And again, I would actually endorse kind of Tony's point about the um, the extraordinarily clever um, like the film board comes in for infinite kind of um, criticism. It can't be all things to all people, but I think it has been exceptionally clever in managing to find ways to get around that, you know, and to do work that is really kind of locally, culturally engaged, um, despite you know explicit and implicit kind of pressures to really focus on the great films, the rooms of this world, and the lobsters of this world, and the favourites of the, well, not the favourites, for example but the the, the first two of this world. Nonetheless, it still managed to support work like The Lonely Battle, for example, with Thomas Reid.
0: On that note, uh, thank you for such a rich start. We would that we had more time, but the day continues. There would be lots of other chances to hear uh, new voices. So could you join me in warmly thanking Roddy and Tilney? (laughs)